Hi everyone. This week we had a conversation with Dr. Roland Zahn, a consultant psychiatrist at KCL. We looked at his work with grief, the effectiveness of antidepressants and neurofeedback. As ever, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Roland. How are you? Hi, Harry. Nice to meet you. Um, so our first question is always, what what does your relationship with, with mental health look like? Also, my mental ill health, I should say, is occupies most of my life because I'm, uh, I'm specializing in depression, bipolar, unipolar depression. I see people affected by uh, depression, try to help them as a psychiatrist in the National Service for Affective Disorders mostly, but I'm also, um, most of my time I try to reserve for research and um, to try and understand what, um, why people develop depression, what symptoms, what, what the most important symptoms are, and to understand the brain mechanisms behind those and um, then to try and find new treatments and new ways of predicting um, who will get better with a specific treatment. Um, and then, of course, I also spend time teaching our MSc students who want to specialize in affective disorders. So that's um, mood disorders like depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders. And um, so basically, yeah, that's my relationship. So I've um, been lucky not to be affected by depression myself yet, but you know that can happen anytime. Um, yeah, so that's my relationship. So what what got you interested in that in the first place? That's a good question. Um, I think it's always hard to say, isn't it? But in my case, um, it's my my grandfather was a psychiatrist. Um, and he's about 100 years older than, he's basically two generations older than me. Um, so it was always something that was interesting. Um, and um, But that can also be a burden, of course, if you have these um, role models in your own family that you want to imitate, and then actually you have to find your own way. So it's it can be, it's a privilege to have those role models, but it can also be a burden. Um, so yeah, the way, the way I found out about your work was, was through Alistair Campbell's book where, where you were, you were talking to him about guilt and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you put him in, uh, an MRI scanner, um, to look at which areas of his, I think, I think you, uh, I might have got this completely wrong, but to see which areas of his brain lit up with um when you mentioned certain things so can you talk a bit about about what that research was about and and the kind of background behind that yeah of course um so it's um it's actually i've i've started to work on um on guilt and and self-blame quite a while back and on the neural basis and that was 
due to meeting when I was um, doing my postdoc at the National Institute for Health in the US, I um, met George Moore, who's a Brazilian neuroscientist and neurologist, and he was um, doing the first studies on how we, you know, which areas of the brain are active for so-called moral emotions, so emotions such as guilt, which have a moral component because they entail being concerned about others rather than just about yourself. And at the time, I thought this is not really a, an interesting topic because it's so hard to study and it's so complex. But he got me into this and I realized that the things that I was interested in at the time, which was um, how can we understand self-worth and the reduction of self-worth and depression, and how can we understand this over-general uh, thinking in depression, which um, Beck, Aaron Beck, the um, inventor of the cognitive behavioral approach uh, pointed out, how can we understand that? And then I realized that actually those two things are very much linked. So, and that's known, that's been known, of course, in the psychotherapy literature for quite some time. So the idea that if you blame yourself in, a, in an overgeneral way, so rather than saying, so for example, if you, um, if you lose your job, um, that often can have multi, lots of factors, the economy, you know, you might not have got a good relationship with work colleagues, your skills might not be required, and you can blame yourself in a differentiated fashion and really try and understand all the different components to it, or you can blame yourself in this overgeneral way and say, this is just a sign of me being a total failure, like always, and you know, what's the point? And that's what you find typically uh, when people are in depression. So it's self, this overgeneralized self-blame um, can happen in the non-interpersonal sphere that would be in the job uh, context, for example, but it can also happen in the interpersonal uh, area where it's about others. You, you feel you might have um, done something wrong in, in the social context, and then it's associated with overgeneral forms of guilt. So, um, and we realized that the brain areas that are relevant to understanding these overgeneralized forms of guilt, which people often experience as self-disgust, as we later found, um, that they were very much the brain regions that we had been doing separate lines of research. Um, so and that got me into this um, whole area. And um, then later on, we, uh, we found the, some, some signature in the brain that we thought was relevant to this overgeneralization of guilt. And then we had this ambitious plan. So Georges Moll said, okay, I want to build a neurofeedback system. So it's basically the ability of the fMRI scanner not only to measure um, um, blood flow in the brain, but also to analyze that in, re in real time. So real time is, of course, not instantaneously. There's a two-second delay. So you take a picture of someone's brain whilst they're thinking about a self-blame-related um, event in their past. And then you take a picture every two seconds, you analyze that picture, and then you give them some type of visual feedback signal, which transforms the signal in the brain into some form of visualization of what's happening. So we use the thermometer scale, I say a thermometer scale going up and down. 
And then you can, the, the person who's in the scanner can use that information to train their brain. And of course, that's not a new idea. Other people have done that. So we're not supposed to do this, but what we wanted to do for the first time is to apply this technique to the brain signature we found to be relevant for guilt. And so that was the study that um, Alistair Campbell I've just tried out. He did one of the three sessions. Once you've got that kind of real-time data, how can do you use that in the moment to help people, or is it more you take that away and through therapy you kind of help them through what they're suffering with? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So most neurofeedback studies, you know, it's a, it's still a young field, but it's a growing field. They've not given instructions to people what to do in the scanner. They've just basically asked them to change the, the feedback signal, the visual feedback signal, the thermometer, for example, in a certain way and train their brain. But what we've done is to give them a strategy. We've given them 10 strategies how to deal with that guilt-related situation. Uh, and I think Alistair Campbell thought about his brother, Donald, in the scanner. And so um, we gave people uh, different strategies to choose from, for, for example, think about why the, this might not have been under your control, the situation, or why you might not have been responsible for it, or think about forgiving yourself or forgiving others. Uh, that was uh, Tanya Yakli's idea. Um, and yeah, so we, we, assembled a couple of strategies and then people pick a strategy that worked best to change the neurofeedback signal in the way we wanted it to change. So we wanted people to normalize or to change the connections between um, these two brain regions we were thinking that we thought were relevant. And so they tried different strategies to see which strategy worked best to change the thermometer scale that they were seeing um, in, in real time. But then of course, what we also wanted to see is that people, so people had three sessions over three to five weeks, but we wanted them to use the same strategies that they had developed in the scanner, outside of the scanner. So every time something popped into their mind, which was self-blame related, that, you know, it, does happen very often for them to use that same strategy. And that's in the book, it's interesting because when, when Alistair Campbell came out of the scanner, he said, this wasn't really helpful for me at all. But in the book, he's, he reflected, used some of those strategies later on. And that seemed to have been more beneficial aspect of this. And I do think that's the case. So if you need, you need to generalize the strategy to your real time, your, to your real life, to your everyday life, to tackle those thoughts. Um, rather than avoiding them, which I, I've got the impression that lots of people with depression avoid thinking about self-blame, and that's why it haunts them. It comes back as, a, as an automatic thought, as Beck calls it, something you can't control. I definitely can see what you mean about people wanting to avoid thinking about um, things that they may feel guilty about when they're depressed, especially when they kind of start start ruminating and, and something that that was particularly helpful for me was was cognitive behavioral therapy i think you kind of touching on it with with beck's work so how how does what how does what you're doing with uh with the people with this neuro neuro um neurofeedback how does that differ from cognitive behavioral therapy or is it or is it actually fairly similar yeah i think that's a good question i think the problem with cognitive behavioral therapy is although the evidence base is 
uh, very good for it. It's not for everyone because it's very complex and requires a lot of um, active engagement. It's, and the problem with it is um, that you don't really know why it works. So although it works, it's such a complex intervention that it's with lots of components that it's not entirely clear why it works. So sometimes you get people, you ask them, what was the thing that really helped? They wouldn't be able to tell you. In the trial, we included people who've had the option of going for CBT, have either not um, profited from it or, and that's what's often forgotten, there are lots of people who really dislike the idea of talking to someone or going for a talking therapy. Um, and I suspect it's the people who like to um, be in, in charge of sorting out their own problems. And I think that's the appealing thing about this neurofeedback. It's yours it, it, because you have to work out the solution yourself, get some guidance, but um, it's not an inter, there's no therapist. And that can, you know, for some people, the therapist is fantastic and is, is the real thing that, of course, there is overlap with cognitive behavioral therapy because we, we use some of the strategies that you'd also try and get people to do. Although in, in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea is the Socratic dialogue, that you've got this dialogue with yourself. Um, and, you know, that isn't necessarily what we ask people to do, but they could potentially do it. it so... There is some overlap, but there is also the interesting thing that Beck, trained as an analyst, psychoanalyst himself, rejected some of the ideas of psychoanalysis, you know, and I think he was right in doing so. But uh, interestingly, when you read Beck, he said guilt is overemphasized in psychoanalysis, um, because Freud very much placed an emphasis on guilt. And for Beck, there's a separation between cognition, so that the thinking, uh, problems and the uh, passive emotion, whereas in our understanding, there isn't that strict separation between emotion, so, so guilt as an emotional experience and the cognitive aspects of it. So there is a slight theoretical difference, but, um, we, but that's not, I, I would say actually it taps into the same things as CBT, because also CBT also challenges your self-criticism and potentially the, the strategies people develop in CBT are very similar to the strategies that people might develop with the neurofeedback, which brings us to the question, for whom is that neurofeedback the right type of treatment? And that's something we really need to find out. Yeah, I was actually about to ask a bit about that because um, from, from what I've read, something like the, the neurofeedback approach that you do is, is for people that uh that may have had treatment resistant depression um so they may have not responded to something like antidepressants or like you said cbt so what are the other kind of novel mechanisms that are used to 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 look at treatment resistant depression and how can you start to uh i suppose screen people to see what kind of things work best for them so they're not just going because I know a lot of people I was quite lucky with the the antidepressant that I took worked for me straight away and I like I don't know if it was placebo or what but I know of a lot of people that have had to go through trial and error with 
with what antidepressant works for them or even what therapist works for them? That's a very good question. So just to say, so the trial we've um, done, which is already pre-published, but it's hopefully going to be published in the journal soon, that, that we have, although we've asked, we've, uh, the criteria were that people must have had at least one type of treatment which hasn't worked or which they weren't amenable to. So if someone said, actually, I neither want to go for um, an, an antidepressant or uh, psychotherapy, they could also be enrolled in the trial. So it was a fairly early stage of treatment resistance. Um, but you're right, it was the reason why we said we want someone who is not amenable to the first line standard treatment is because it's a relatively expensive treatment. But you're right, it's a huge problem, this trial and error, uh, because we don't know which treatment works for whom. But the, I think that even the problem which really uh, I found really frustrating is that I see most the access to second line treatment is very variable. So, you know, some people might be lucky and they are offered another type of um, antidepressant. But many people, you know, they just offered one serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And if that doesn't work, they might be offered a second one. But access to other types of antidepressants is very uh, limited. And psychotherapy, I think the same thing is happening that people are on waiting lists often quite long, then they might get their sec six sessions of. Um, CBT, but it's often then very hard to get high intensity or other types of therapy, such as interpersonal therapy or mindfulness-based um, cognitive therapy. So that's so. So there is a real access problem. But in an ideal world, say if we had access to all those treatments, uh, the problem that you've mentioned is still there. That we would want people not to have to go through all these trials and errors because after each failed trial, people lose a little bit of hope and trust um, that, you know, when you were depressed, that's already an issue anyway, you feel hopeless. So that's why there's huge efforts around the world to try and um, uh, develop predictors of who, for example, does or does not respond to a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is the first line drug. Um, and there are some interesting uh, findings. So, so there was a study done in the US, for example, by um, Bodie Dunlop um, and Helen Mainberg, who's a senior author, who uh, used um, a type of functional MRI scan to predict at an individual level who would respond better to CBT versus um, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And they had quite a high accuracy of predicting that. Uh, but of course, that type of work needs to be replicated, and it was only in people who've never had treatment before. So with treatment-resistant depression, even, it's even harder to study because there's a big debate, how should you define treatment resistance? But what we've tried to do is we've done this trial where um, we've developed a decision support system, a computerized decision support system, which we've built into the primary care health record systems. Uh, so that there's a leading company in the UK work with a company to build this into the GP computer systems. And that was not really based on prediction of who would respond to what type of antidepressant, but it was based on the idea, which antidepressant is the one that's least likely to cause side effects for that particular person. And just monitoring whether someone responds to, to medication using 
compression scales um, regularly and then using a mobile app and then feeding that back to the GP so that they could change treatment. So I think if we had something like that, that would also be a very good first step. The problem was um, that um, it's very hard to actually carry out such a study. We had a relatively small budget and now we had to stop recruiting for it because of COVID. So um, it's a bit sad, but I think that's also a very important way of developing things further, further making decisions about whether something works or doesn't work much more quickly. Um, so after three weeks um, to see, is it likely that someone is going to respond to that medication? So that this whole process isn't as drawn out as it is today. Yeah, is is one of the issues with with antidepressants that they actually have like a, a roughly a two week period where they before they start to be effective. Um, so by the time you've been on one, you've taken the two weeks, then you need to. I don't know, wait, uh, I don't know how long is recommended to wait for to see if it's working, but it can be up to like six weeks before you realise if it's working or not, and then you have to come off it and start another one. So is that an issue with knowing what antidepressant to prescribe? Yeah, so this is this is a very important point. that there is. So in the past, um, everyone was taught you've got to wait for six to eight weeks until you're sure that someone doesn't respond to a, an antidepressant and it started, starts working only after two weeks. But, not, but more recent studies show that, first of all, in big trials, you can see a signal of improvement already after a week. It's just that it might be so subtle that you won't get it significant in a smaller sample. But, um, and, and often people don't realize that benefit after a week, um, but there is probably an effect already after a week or so. Um, I, I would still say that, um, so that this, there are good studies now showing that if someone's not had a slight reduction, say 20 to 30% reduction on their, um, say 20% reduction at least on a depression scale after three weeks, um, on an antidepressant, it's very unlikely that they're going to respond to that antidepressants later on. Although there are still some people where it takes about six weeks um, to, to show that full response. The response we define as a 50% reduction in depression scale scores. Um, so what I would say is the problem right now is that because it's GP surgeries are overwhelmed, it's hard to get appointments, and uh, you know, GPs are asked to do more and more work. I'm, I know that because I'm, I've worked with uh, GPs for four years. And, and so what happens is you, you might see someone initially to start an antidepressant, but it's, it often takes quite a long time until it's uh, changed, because changing the treatment takes up appointments that aren't there. Um, and so think we need to have an idea. I, I think we can't ask the GPs to do all that. We need some services that are dedicated to people for whom the first antidepressant doesn't work. I don't think you can deal with that effectively in primary care as it's set up. Uh, you need some additional support for that. Um, and that's the problem right now. Secondary care is um, primarily concerned with people who are at risk of um, uh, to, to 
commit suicide um, and maybe need uh, very intensive monitoring. But so if you if you're not at risk of suicide and if you are not responding to your first type of treatment, I think currently the system doesn't really um, there's no real system for that people. And those are the, most of the people that I I, I get in touch with, um, and that, that at least. 60% of people with depression. Um, and even more because we know about 50% of people seek help. Um, and so you're talking about um, the 50% who actually make the decision to seek help, which is great, but from at least half or more than half of these people are not really um, helped by just trying one treatment. Yeah, so that's I think we need we need a very broad debate about what to do about this because that's that's I think that's what I'm mainly concerned about. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It really echoes my my own kind of experience because um, I I went to the GP a few times and and got offered an antidepressant quite quickly, but I didn't really feel it was right for me at the time. I eventually, you know, did did take it, but um started doing things like cbt and um mindfulness-based cognitive therapy as well at the same time but the the fact that if i'd or when i took one anti when i started to take one antidepressant obviously that's a i know you said it's a bit mixed but um i had to wait for it to start working and then there wasn't really it wasn't the GP's fault at all but there wasn't really they didn't really have time to do a follow-up appointment um just to see how it worked so it was only when I came into the GP a few months later with um with a different issue that that we talked about um how the medication was working um and that actually i needed to go up to a higher dosage on it and i think i think that's where where you made the point that the the secondary kind of care needs to be much much better and the follow-up around around it must be much better but it's not it's absolutely not the fault of the the doctors or the gps because they just don't have the time to do that but i think it's a problem it's a failure in in the whole how the system is designed but i think you know, but the problem is the, of course, it's always about the money, isn't it? But I think the way to solve this is to use uh, novel technology to, to help with this and actually to, to um, actually put, do, do a lot more self-management. So it's a, a former master's student of mine, Nima Nariman. He's currently developing uh, an app for people with depression and he's got the startup. Um, and I think that will be a really good idea. And of course, there, there are lots of apps out there, but none of them are really, you know, a few of them are evidence-based. Um, but I think if you could have, if you could ask, if people could track the, um, their depression symptoms themselves um, on their phones, and they could then get advice and say, look, this doesn't seem to be working. Um, I think you know the next step would be this, and then they could try and request it, and we, one could set up services around this, and of course one could also set up services to support people in um, 
in making these decisions. But, you know, as you've observed, and that's my observation as well, in the current uh, system, there isn't enough time. There is enough, and I think what we need still is these algorithms, uh, such, as the, such as the one we've used for the study, that are fairly simple, but they could be built into these, um, into these self-management tools. And, you know, you could even have a prescribing pharmacist, um, uh, no, prescribing nurse, a team of doctors um, running a service like that, but aided by technology. And I think that could be an interesting way of doing things. Because um, I don't think you can just add it to primary or secondary care because they are busy with other things. So I think we need some dedicated services for um, this um, this problem and, and new, new technology, I think, could be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And we always kind of wrap things up by asking how you personally look after your your own mental well-being um so what kind of things do you do it's a great question i think actually i'm very bad at this because uh, i am always impressed by what the, you know the people who've suffered from depression when they you know when they manage to stay well and i've met lots of people who've um you know who've survived depression and they Manage to stay well, and they're much more proactive in you know building regular routines of adaptive things into their lives, exercising. And I'm always thinking I'm really bad at this, but um, I think that for me, um, having some time to switch off uh, every day is really quite important. But also, I find the the, the pandemic and the um, quite disruptive in that regard because it's it's very hard to meet friends um you know to maybe go out um once in a while so i find it uh, quite challenging but um to me i think it's sometimes really important to keep um active and, and structure your day that's the one thing i'm good at i can i can structure my day and i can get on with things even if i'm not always motivated to do them. And I think that's, that's when things spiral down. If you basically stop being active in whatever way, whether it's mental or physical. Um, so, and you know, that's what the basic element of behavioral activation therapy is so the first step of um, cognitive behavioral therapy, just to, just to keep going, um, not always feel like it. I think what you've what you've just said is quite interesting. And my um, my dad's a, uh, a a professor in medicine, and my mum's a nurse. And I definitely observe that that perhaps the things that they say to the people that they work with uh, for their own health benefit are not maybe the things that they're not very good at doing themselves. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, it's true. There's a huge, especially in medicine. There's culture of um, thinking that you're immune from the, the the illnesses that you tried to help people with and then until you fall into that um, trap. But of course, I think actually having a, um, you know, trying to, to be passionate about your work, I think that's a hugely, um, that's hugely helpful if you can do something that you think is meaningful. And I try to, when, when I get frustrated with 
the slow progress of my work, um, then I try to build in some time to get passionate about the, the things again that I'm working on. Um, so, so because I think we always see work as a negative thing, as you know, people talk about life work balance. That's a problematic term because it, it's it's uh, it's, a, it, it's almost as if work isn't life. And, and as if work should not be enjoyable. So, so I think work should be enjoyable as much as it can be. It can't always be. And of course, it depends on what type of work we're working. But, um, but I think it's not about, I think it's really trying to build in things that you, that, that um, are meaningful to you and, and you, um, yeah. So, so, but I'm, I'm, I don't have the answer. That's the, that's the right um, question. I think actually Alistair Campbell's book has much better too. Yeah, and the last thing we always ask is where we can find more about the work you do and things. Yeah, so I've got a, um, a webpage. Um, it's called Translational Cognitive Neuroscience um, org, and that gives you some links to, to media coverage for, for, general, for the generally interested um, public, but also, um, yeah, if you want to read more about the, the papers we publish, it, it links to, to all the information in the current projects we're doing. Brilliant. Roland, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, Henry. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick note to say that although things I discussed with the guests we may find helpful, I'm not a trained medical professional. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or speak to an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.